Well, you might actually wonder, why might I choose a topic like this? Well, I've got a little story to tell. Has anyone seen this on Facebook in the last week or so? It went viral. It went viral. And um, some people were offended by it. Undoubtedly, I guess, some Christians might have looked at it and felt, oh my goodness, this is a terrible thing. This is really trivialising the whole point about Christmas. And one of my friends actually drew my attention to it early last week. And I looked at it and I thought, well, okay, it's kind of catchy. You know, if you see that on a billboard, you walk past, you'll think, well, you know, maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's something about this Christmas story that's worth looking into. Or, oh, well, hang on, Mary and Joseph were just like most people these days. What's the difference? They may be even set a trend all those years ago. And I looked at it myself and I thought, but it's not actually true. And I I said to my friend, look, it's probably okay as a means of drawing people's attention, but I hope when they actually go into the church, they hear the true message of Christmas. So I did some investigation. And uh, this is a church in Adelaide, Trinity Church in Adelaide. It's actually the oldest church in South Australia. It's an Anglican church. It just happens to be the biggest Anglican church in South Australia in terms of the number of people who attend services every week. The foundation stone was laid way back in 1838 and uh, they didn't do so well with the first, at their first trial building so it was um, rebuilt in uh, 1845. And that there is a, um, I think that's a lithograph, from a lithograph of the original church. So it's been um, rebuilt a couple of times since then. But it's been around for a long, long time. In uh, the 1960s, in about 1967, it was enlarged so that it could seat 150 people. On a typical Sunday, they run four services in this old uh, church. They have six daughter churches, so they've been church planting. They, they decided that um, having one location wasn't good enough, they needed to go out into the suburbs in Adelaide to reach the people. So they've got six, what, what we might call in the ACC, um, church plants or, or campuses. They call theirs daughter churches. Nine services in six of those, in, uh, sorry, nine services in those six daughter churches. And as I mentioned, it's the largest Anglican church in Australia. Now, they are represented as evangelical, that is, they actually want to get the message of Christmas out into the community, and they're conservative, which actually means they believe in the Bible, which is pretty good. Except I'm thinking, so what is the message attached to the billboard? Well, here we go. This guy here is the senior minister. Uh, they don't call themselves Father This and Father That at uh, Trinity Church in Adelaide. His name's Chris Jolliffe. He's probably a jolly person by the look of that. He's the acting senior minister and he's the, the guy who, who dreamt up uh, the billboard in the first place. This is what he says. Christmas can be challenging 
And for a lot of people, of course, Christmas is challenging for all sorts of reasons. Our neighbour across the road died last Monday night, so his family are going to find this Christmas, and Christmas is to come very, very challenging. We had a neighbour in Christchurch, the same thing. Her husband died on Christmas Eve. Big challenge for her every year at Christmas, a time when everyone else was celebrating. She was very, very sad because it reminded her of her husband. So Joseph wasn't afraid when his world was turned upside down. Find out why Joseph was joyful and why we can be too. Come along to Christmas at Trinity City. So there's a hint there that the billboard was just, if you like, a hook to get people interested in the Christmas message. And they actually have Christmas lights. They, they do um, tours of the, of the church during this Christmas period. I've actually seen photographs of the beautiful spread they provide all their visitors. I mean, ours is so humble compared to theirs. All this homemade stuff adorns these long trestle tables. And they present the message of Jesus. I say good on them. I think it's a, a wonderful thing that they are doing something right in the middle of the city of Adelaide. Thousands of cars go past. It's on one of the main um, thoroughfares in the centre of Adelaide, this church. And there are hundreds and hundreds of people walk past every day. So they're doing a great thing and I hope that in time we might be able to do something like that as well and draw hundreds if not thousands of people into the presence of God during the Christmas period. So I, I want to actually focus a little bit on the story that is at the centre of the billboard. And that story is um, recorded for us in the first chapter of Matthew and the first chapter of Luke. Now the two stories are different. And uh, one of the reasons why they're different is that each of these Gospels was well written by a different person, but also in all likelihood targeted at a different audience. Just as that billboard was targeted at a different audience, not at people like me, but at people who only have a tenuous relationship uh, with the Lord and little or no engagement with the church, certainly not on a regular basis. Um, Matthew was most likely written for Jewish Christians because there's a lot of reference back to the Old Testament. There are a lot of direct quotes from the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. There's some speculation that it was actually the first gospel written, although with all of these things, of course, you can find theologians who take a contrary view. In the, but it was in the very early days of Christianity, and Christianity, of course, existed alongside um, the Jewish culture. And at that time, of course, the, the new Jewish Christians were going to the synagogue on Saturday, the Sabbath, and they would um, meet together on, on Sundays. And I think it's quite significant that Mary is hardly mentioned in this particular um, record of the birth of Jesus. She's obviously referred to as his mother. But actually, in Matthew, the focus is on Joseph. Now, I think that's indicative of the fact that it was written for people who still had very strong connections with Jewish culture. And in Jewish culture, the bloke 
right? He was the head. And so it's got a, a, a kind of a male um, um, focus. But if you have a look at the book of Luke, written for a different audience, uh, it was uh, written specifically for Theophilus, who was a high official, and um, Luke himself says, this is a record, an historical record of Jesus. Uh, most authorities believe that Luke also wrote the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is an historical record of the development of the early church. Uh, Luke is also well known, of course, for his many references to the Holy Spirit. But as well as being written to an individual, it's pretty clear that the book of Luke is addressed to the universal Christian church. So it addresses us Gentiles in particular without ignoring potential Jewish audience as well. So I'm going to do some reading from Matthew and from Luke. And I want to draw your attention to some really important issues that are touched on. Oh, I just need to. I, haven't got, I don't like wearing glasses when I'm when reading the Bible. It's just on and off and on and off. So I've got big print and I can hold it a long way from my face. Now this is uh, recorded in the book of Matthew, chapter one, and we're beginning in verse eighteen. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. The first important point in this um, passage, I think, is the reference to Joseph as a just man. And that could easily be rendered righteous man. Now Joseph, he was a Jew, he lived under the law. And under the law, of course, to be righteous, you had to be somebody who actually obeyed the law, who lived their life in accordance with the law. That is all of the Mosaic law. So that was all of the, uh, the celebrations. Presumably he, he tithed and, and gave all of those offerings. Um, but also he would have known that if a woman became pregnant by someone who was not her betrothed, he could at the very least divorce her, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this in a moment, but also he could report it to the authorities and she could potentially be stoned. That was 
a biblical or it's like a legal consequence of pregnancy out of wedlock. Stoning. Oh man. Now let me just say there's very, very little evidence that much stoning took place at all. It was in the law but because of the very high standard of proof that was necessary, not too many people were stoned. So the, um, the Jews didn't go around, around stoning people all the time because they had a very, very strict legal system that required extremely high standards of proof. But um, Joseph would have known that he was not the father. And so he could have actually, had he wanted to, and because he was a just man, see, he was a man who lived by the law. He understood that if you didn't live by the law, you weren't righteous, and if you weren't righteous, then you couldn't come under the blessing of God Almighty. So there was something about Joseph that even before he had this dream, he had a sense that there was something special here. He had compassion for Mary and he decided, as it says in this version, which is the New King James Version, to put her away quietly. That actually means to divorce her. Now you've got to understand that in Jewish tradition, in the traditional family, divorce never happened after marriage. It happened during the period of betrothal. So what happened was, generally speaking, parents would determine who was going to marry whom. Alright? It wasn't a matter of finding someone that you fall in love with and then say, Hey, Mum and Dad, I'm going to marry so-and-so and such-and-such, or such-and-such. Um, most marriages were actually arranged marriages, family to family. And um, the betrothal was the equivalent of our, our modern-day engagement. But after the betrothal, the, 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 the young couple would separate and they'd be separated for 12 months. Alright? So the woman would stay with her family, the man would stay with his family, and they really wouldn't see each other for 12 months. Now during that time, if it became known that, say, the woman had already engaged in sexual activity, that was ground for divorce. And so divorce was something that actually happened during the betrothal period. And uh, because, as far as Joseph knew, until he had the dream, she must have had sex with another man, he was within his rights, actually, to go um, to the priest and have a stoned. But he said, no, but I'll just quietly divorce her. Right? I'm not going to make a song and dance about it. I'm not going to make a fuss. I'll quietly divorce her. But then... He has a dream and an angel appears to him and explains what's going on. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this is a righteous man, a man who lives his life according to the law, but he must have understood something about the law that many Jews didn't understand. And that was that the law didn't exist for its own sake. The law existed, one, to identify sin, but two, to create the conditions under which people could have relationship with God. If you go to all of those cleansing ceremonies, 
ceremonies associated with the forgiveness of sin, they were designed to draw people close to God. So Joseph was a man who understood that the law did not exist simply for its own sake. It existed for a purpose. And so he was actually open to God speaking to him. Now, because he was a righteous man, there was a potential that both him and Mary would be ostracised by their society. Because people would have been able to put two and two together and work out that if they had a baby so soon after they were married, and by the way, they were actually married when Jesus was born, contrary to the billboard, but they were actually married when Jesus was born. But it wouldn't have taken too much for people to work out that she must have been pregnant before the baby was born. And Joseph and Mary weren't even supposed to be seeing each other during that period of betrothal. So he took a big risk himself by not quietly putting her away. So here we have a man who's open to the voice of God. So he's not a man who's a slave to the law. He's a man who, unlike many Jews, had actually built a personal relationship with the one true living God. And so when God speaks to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, sorry, to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, he must have had a good enough relationship with God to believe and to obey. And I wonder, you know, first, how open are we? How easy do we make it for God to communicate with us? Second, do we know him well enough to believe what he actually says to us? And three, are we actually prepared to obey? Good questions, aren't they? We probably need a lot more Josephs in this land of Australia today and in the church today. So God speaks to him and and says she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Well, if I was Joseph, I'd live my life according to the law and then God says you're going to have this son by the Holy Spirit, call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves or salvation comes from the Lord. For he will save his people from their sins. This is a man steeped in the law. Can you imagine how hard it must have been for him to believe God? Because it was the law that saved. And now he's being told, you're going to have, or your wife is going to have this baby. You're going to call his name Jesus, which means salvation comes uh, from the Lord. And he's going to save the people from their sins. Now, it's possible that through his, his reading of the Scriptures, he understood that Jesus was actually the Messiah. But there's other evidence, particularly when, uh, as a boy of 12, Jesus, as it were, gets lost and they find him in the temple, there's evidence that his mum and dad didn't really understand truly who he was. So it's such a huge thing for Joseph to actually believe what God spoke 
to him. Then Matthew goes on to say, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord uh, through the prophet. I won't read over that again. So Joseph actually was in a position where God could speak to him. He listened. He understood, at least at that point in his life, what God was saying, and he obeyed. So he went against all his instincts based on the law and said, yes to Mary, you are my wife. Now let us go over to Luke. The passage in Luke is much longer. I'm not going to read it all. But there are a few points that I I want to make. So, here we start with the announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary. And note that in this gospel, the emphasis is on Mary rather than Joseph. Now, in the fifth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now it's interesting that in Isaiah chapter 7, it's in Isaiah anyway, the, um, the word, the Hebrew word used doesn't literally mean virgin, it just means a young woman. Uh, Mary was likely perhaps 14 or 15 years of age. That was roughly the age at which a woman was betrothed to be, to be married. But actually the Greek, the Greek definitely literally means a virgin, a woman who has not had sex with a man. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favoured one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be? since I do not know a man. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Then it goes on to talk about Elizabeth, your your relative, having conceived a son. Elizabeth was an older woman. She had desired to have children. That had proven to be barren. So she was pregnant by miracle as well um, to, to her husband. I think this is very significant. He says, Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And, uh, of course, the child that Elizabeth was carrying was John, came John the Baptist. <laughs> so here we have Mary. Now, now Mary, it says here, 
she was troubled. She was troubled. When she saw him, that's the angel Gabriel, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Well, of course she was troubled because she would have understood the law as well. And the idea of her being, being pregnant during the period of betrothal would have filled her with fear. The angel went on to explain and it's really significant, I believe, that God said to her, for with God nothing will be impossible. I mean, how easy do you think it is for God to forgive your sins if he can actually, once in the whole of human history, impregnate a woman with a baby who will become the saviour of the world. And it's very interesting because barrenness features quite prominently in the Old Testament. There are four or five instances of women who were barren and Israel itself is sometimes actually referred to as the barren one but there is always the promise. There is always the promise of children for the barren one. And here we have Elizabeth and she is bearing the baby who will become John the Baptist. So on a number of levels we see that God is doing the impossible. And you might wonder why it was that Jesus presented as a helpless baby. Well, Jesus himself did the impossible because as a man he lived a sinless life. He had such a relationship with his father God that even though he was a man he was expressed in the flesh he did not sin. And what God did for Elizabeth and what he did for barren women so often in the Old Testament, he does today. And we, we're believing that in our family, that there is nothing that is impossible for God. And then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So here we have a young woman who's prepared to obey God. Do you know what? At that point, she could not have known what Joseph was going to do. So at that point, she must have thought, the very worst thing that could happen to me is that I will be stoned. The best thing that could happen to me is that I will actually become the mother of Jesus Christ. So she chose, she chose to be obedient. She didn't run away from the assignment like Jonah tried to and wound up three days in the belly of a whale. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. So she actually spent some time with Elizabeth. And I won't go through that, but you can read this um, in your own time. Uh, but I, d I do want to just read Mary's hymn or Mary's psalm. It's sometimes called the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour, 
For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Now, if you have a look at that, you'll see that there are various quotes from the Psalms in the Old Testament and from some other um, scriptures in the Old Testament. So Mary herself must have known the scriptures well and she's drawn on those scriptures as she said this, this prayer and it's written very much like some of the, of the Psalms. And she acknowledges here, she acknowledges here that she is to be called blessed. So through a process of time, through a process of her actually meditating on what the angel Gabriel had said to her, she came to believe indeed that what God had said would be true. And uh, I mean, some people say, well, Mary must have been up herself a little bit if, um, if uh, you know, she makes this pronouncement over herself, you know, I'm going to be called blessed. But you see, she could just as easily have been called cursed. So for her to make that statement, you know, sometimes we've got to meditate on the, the, the real meaning of the words. It's so easy for us to just read that, to gloss over that. And, you know, there'll be many churches around Australia where perhaps this is read on Christmas Day or on one of the Sundays leading up to Christmas Day and it just becomes words in people's ears. But here we have this young woman Never before and never again in the whole of human history is this to be repeated. And she, it could have been a different outcome and yet she recognises the truth of what God had spoken to her through the Archangel Gabriel. And then she goes on, you know, to praise God. I wonder how many of us can praise God in a situation where we know we might become social outcasts. She praises God. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Well, you know, if, if you had received news like that, you might not have had the same attitude. His mercy is on those who fear him. You know, those people who have a reverential relationship with Jesus Christ. And it doesn't apply just to Mary, it applies to us as well. And you'll see the reference there. To, uh, to Israel. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as I was preparing this, I was looking through a whole lot of Old Testament prophetic scriptures. And you know, although Israel so often drew away from God, and he eventually actually let them suffer the consequences of what they had done. And those consequences were dire. I mean, they were so dire that they turned cannibal at times. Right? They were eating their own children at times. That's how desperate they'd become. But every time God says, but yet, I will bless you. And if you have a look at Isaiah 
In particular, towards the end of Isaiah, there are a number of chapters there where God is saying, I will bless you, I will bring you back to me. And who was it that became the one through whom Israel could be reconciled to God? None other than Jesus Christ. And of course, it's through Jesus Christ that we too are reconciled. This becomes then not just a promise to Israel, but a promise to all of humanity. So yes, on reflection, I'm okay with the billboard. I'm okay with the billboard because I did my research and I discovered that behind the billboard is a Bible-believing church that wants to reach out and touch the hearts of men and women this Christmas with the truth, with the truth of the record of the conception and the birth of Jesus Christ. A once in human history thing when God intervenes in the affairs of human beings and chooses to reveal himself to the world as Ainsley said as a helpless babe in a manger. He lived as a human being but his relationship with his heavenly father was so close that he never sinned and eventually he became the sacrificial lamb and he went to the cross and actually made it possible for us to have a personal relationship with the Lord God Almighty, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one whose very breath it is that sustains the whole of the universe today. That helpless baby, that helpless baby. Parents, parents of faith, parents who knew God well enough that he could speak to them either directly as as was the case through the dream uh, for Joseph or through an angel as was the case for Mary. So they knew their God well enough that when he spoke they knew who was speaking. They knew their God well enough to understand what he was saying and they knew their God well enough to be obedient to his word. And I wonder if at this season of the year we could reflect ourselves on our relationship with God are we close enough to God that we're going to give him a chance to speak to us are we close enough to God that when he speaks we'll actually know what he's saying and are we close enough to God to have the trust it takes in order to be obedient well I just have one more thing I want to do before